0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome into the podcast. We are continuing through the book of Revelation and we are uh, taking some time in chapters two and three, which are the seven messages. And what we're doing, rather than just combing through slowly and looking at each, uh, passage one by one. What we're doing is we're kind of taking a pass. We're we're going through the two chapters, looking at a, a certain perspective, and then we're going back again, and we're doing the same thing and just looking at different aspects of it. So uh, this week we're we're kind of in you know uh, the beginning stages of that. Still, uh, we're going to do it for a while. So today let's let's go through a pass, and let's look at each of the messages uh, that contain, you know, look, let's look at the words of affirmation, the positive things that uh, John says, and then the words of censure and warning or the negative things of the seven messages. So that's, that's pretty much the goal, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We mentioned last week that each of the seven messages has kind of basically a, a similar structure. They all begin with an exhortation to the angel to write, and then a description of Jesus, which we looked at in detail last week, And then each of the messages has words of affirmation, although two don't have any affirmation Mm -hmm. or positives, and then words of censure or negatives or words of warning, and two don't have any negatives. And then they have an exhortation to listen or to, to the one who has ears to hear, and a promise for those who overcome. So let's spend the next two weeks kind of looking at the seven messages in terms of the words of affirmation and the words of censure or the positive and negatives to each of the churches. And then, you know, what does that mean for us? And as we said before, this is so significant because you have to know the churches to whom John is writing because that's going to influence what he's going to say and what he does say later on in the message. You know what we call the heavenly vision there. This will be really influential. Let me also remind us that we've just been encouraging you just to read the book of Revelation, not just to make this a podcast where you kind of like get an overview of the book of Revelation and If you listen to all the episodes, you'll get some basic knowledge and it'll be okay and and all is great. But make this your devotional time also if it's possible. Read through the book of Revelation. Just keep reading it. One chapter a day for 20 days, 22 days in the month, and then the last eight days, do whatever you wish. Find some passages, chapter 7, 14 through 17. We're just going to meditate upon them, or maybe 22, 1 through 5, and just meditate upon them and memorize them, or the, the worship scene in chapter 4 and 5, and just Dwell on there. Let me actually begin, if I can, today by with Psalm number one. I know it's not on our notes, but Psalm number one. It says this How blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But this person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he, medit- or, he or she meditates day and night. They'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever they do, they prosper. Ah, there you go. So let's be those kind of people just meditating upon the word. And that's why we thought let's make these several passes uh, through each of the uh, the seven messages. Cause when we go back to Ephesus and then we go back to Pergamum and we go back to each of the messages, you're going to be, Oh yeah. I remember from last week that they said this about Ephesus. And now they're saying this about Ephesus this week, it'll help us more than just spending 20 minutes on one message and then 20 minutes on another and never, never kind of going back to them. So let's, let's, let's do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So, uh one of the things that we want to talk about is before we get started in 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 the actual messages we've talked about how these you know revelation is a letter it contains letter you know but why we oftentimes popularly think that the letters are the you know chapters two and three it's like no the whole thing is a letter but then we do get into these messages that are addressed to particular churches and so uh you know when we look at messages um like what we see in chapters two and three where there's these specific literal congregations and we've talked about the significance of the seven uh Mm -hmm. uh, congregations so there's probably something else happening here but is it fair to say that these messages that we see in chapters two and three are they like what paul did to the you know wrote to the philippians or romans or or that sort of thing in that you know there there is a particular church with particular needs that uh the the author is addressing
0: yes most definitely at the same time remember though that There are seven churches because they represent all of Christendom. Remember that each of the messages ends with the one who has just to hear that I'm here with the Spirit says to the churches. So each letter is addressed to the churches in uh, plural. And then also what's interesting is that each of the messages begins with this phrase, I know. Five of them say, I know your works. And the letter to Smyrna says, I know your tribulation. And the letter to Pergamum, or the message to Pergamum, it says, I know where you live. But each of the messages has this, I know. And in fact, I know occurs 12 times in the seven messages. So it's, again, Jesus concerned with the overall state of the church or the churches. But yeah, there is a a uniqueness to each of the particular churches. And the differences between the churches also remind us that we can't sit there and go, okay, this was the situation in Christianity as to why John wrote the book of Revelation. Because we realize some of these churches are affluent and carefree and don't really care about anything. Some of these churches are are poor and undergoing persecution. Some of these churches are threatening to are, are compromising with the, the local religious cults and religious orders. And some of these churches are like being threatened to do so. So there's a diversity of the audiences to whom John's writing. And that might also help us understand the message of the book as a whole also. So
1: in the same way, if we were studying first Corinthians, we'd want to do a background of what was yeah. happening in Corinth at that time. And that's going to help it fill in the gaps We we would want to do the same thing for some context uh, there just to understand the recipients.
0: Yeah. To some extent. Right. Yeah. And obviously the, like those letters, typically we like, where was Paul at when he wrote this letter? What mm-hmm. was going on before this? What happened after that? He had already written to them once. And then this happened. Uh, that's not as much the case in these messages yeah. as it is in some of those. But yeah, I, absolutely. Very relevant.
1: Okay, Cool. So let's start with the message to the uh, to Ephesus, to the, the Ephesians, not Paul's, mm-hmm. but John's chapter two. Let's go verses two through six. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring, enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have banded the love you have at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what is meant when he says you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false?
0: Well, again, the question is whether the word apostle here is being used as an absolute, a formal title. Like it's certainly not the 12 because he found them to be false. So it's certainly not one of them. But the word apostle just simply means one who is sent. It could refer to like a highly honored believers who are sent by God. Uh, So what appears to be happening, and some may have taken on the title of apostle just to kind of give themselves more authority. But the the Ephesians then, their labor was uh, concerning this orthodoxy. Those who say they are apostles and they are not. You're testing them and they're being applauded for doing so.
1: Okay. So if we were to continue on, then uh, I know your works and you cannot endure evil people and you have tested those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them false. So in a way, this sounds a lot like churches that are maybe doctrinally driven and Mm -hmm. and that's just such a a high emphasis and and doctrine's not bad. Obviously, we we would both affirm Mm -hmm. that doctrine is good, but sometimes you have the churches that everything is just about right belief. Right. Uh, What does it mean that they cannot endure evil people?
0: Well, it's uncertain but it appears to some extent that it has to do with like an unwillingness to tolerate these people uh, who were calling themselves apostles and they were putting them to the test and whatever and the test might have been a a doctrinal test something along the lines of first john those who say you know jesus is lord something along those lines we don't it's hard to know but the indication might be a little bit with uh the reference to Nicolasians, which we'll discuss here in a a few minutes Uh, but nonetheless they were The Ephesians were safeguarding the word and the doctrines of the church, and they're putting these ones to the test and they're being applauded for that, whatever the situation may be, even if we don't know all the details.
1: From an interpretive standpoint, and and I think this is actually a a really good, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this, just being in the church, you know, there's passages, especially in letters, where as outsiders we don't we're not privy to what's happening um and so we read something like this right or we read something where paul will talk about the thorn in his side you know thing and we have like we have no like there's no concept of what he's talking about and you you hear theories on what these things are and people seem to latch on to him and oh he means this and we uh and obviously we're always going to speculate what he means but it, it oftentimes seems like we're willing to grasp onto something and make it this, the thing. And oftentimes it's a hobby horse thing that we might want to just uh, <laughs> uh, appreciate yeah. anyway, as a, as a, um, you know, someone who's trained in in biblical studies and I mean, you interpret for a living, that's this literally your job. What is the caution that you'd give us in terms of coming to a passage? that's very, you know, I don't even know if it's cryptic cause there's nothing to decode, but when it's just, it's unknown, how should we try to figure out what's there? And then how loosely should we hold our conclusions?
0: I think it depends upon what the topic is and how central it is to the gospel message. I don't know. If the passage affirms the centrality of Christ as the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and our call to take up our crosses and following him, then I think we can have a measure of certainty saying, Hey, that's, that's probably what this means. Even though this Mm. text is like a one-off and I'm not certain what it means. It certainly seems to fit with that narrative. So I'll hold that maybe a little bit more strongly even though I might say I'm not sure if that's what the text really says but it does correspond to this overall meaning when the text all of a sudden has some some secondary meaning some loose meaning that you're not really sure but now we got to be really really careful and really really cautious and 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 that goes up to well there's all kinds of issues that we can we can we can start talking about now but let's not go go down all those paths (laughs) I I think the answer is we just got to be careful and the, the the Christian um the The hermeneutic of love. I I always start my hermeneutics class, hermeneutics is biblical interpretation. How do you interpret the text? Whenever I teach how to interpret the Bible or biblical interpretation at the seminary, I always start off with saying, the first thing we have to do is have humility. If you don't have humility when you go to this text as a pastor or whoever's being trained, then you're going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And second thing is we need to have a hermeneutics of love. And that is we need to have love and compassion towards others and towards the congregation and the community. So we have to be careful about taking these texts and start beating people over the head with them when when we're not really even certain that that's what the text actually even says
1: yeah yeah for sure verse uh chapter two verse six who mm-hmm. were the nicolaitans yeah and i yeah. think we've we, we've hinted at this a few yeah. other times when it's come up but uh you know it's it's good to address it again yeah
0: so in chapter uh two la- later on in the message to the church in pergamum chapter two verse 15 uh, it talks about uh but you have there some who hold to the teachings of, of balaam in verse 14 uh, and then it says in verse 15, thus, or in the same way, or likewise, you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so that has led some to conclude that the teaching of Balaam, and we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the let, to the letter to the, or to the message of the church in Pergamum. Uh, and the teaching of the Nicolaitans were this were the same. And that's possible. but this is a really good indication, by the way, of something, and that is this, we' we're, we're, we're in the midst of insider dialogue again. So the fact is they knew who the Nicolaitans were. The Nicolaitans have not been introduced to us. And they're mentioned in verse 16, verse 15 and 16 of chapter 2 now. Um, I'm sorry, uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2 now. So it's one of those, you guys know who they are and stop doing this and what have you. And we don't know. So we have to be careful again with the text. Uh, We have um, an early church writing, one one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, who mentions the Nicolaitans and says that they were followers of one of the seven deacons, which is interesting in the book of Acts, mm. Acts chapter six, verse five, there were seven deacons and Stephen might be the most famous of them who was stoned. Um, but uh, Nicholas was one of the seven de- uh, deacons. And there's a tradition the Nicolaitans came from him, From but we don't know. The idea, however, is, and what uh, Irenaeus says, that they live lives of unrestrained indulgence, he says. Uh, and the idea being probably what we'll see in the in the message to the, to the church in Pergamum. And that is they had compromised the faith with the pagan culture, with the religious cult of the imperial cult. They had gone to the, to the festivals and honor the deities, sacrificed to the deities, committed acts of immorality, which may or may not be literal immorality. It might just be idolatry. Mm-hmm. And that they were compromising the faith. But they're mentioned almost as, as, as a one-off here in, in the message of the church in um, Ephesus. So, but that, by the way, oh yeah, you also have some hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is strange because here's the church known for its doctrinal purity. You guys are really good at putting to the test those who say they're apostles and they're not, but oh, you do have a few who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans and you got to watch out for them.
1: Which is interesting because I'm just thinking in, in the American context, that could very much be the charge against many uh, American mm-hmm. uh, churches where, hey, good, you're you're pursuing sound doctrine, but you also are in bed with this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, even going back to our series was it a year or two ago? It might be two years ago now on a Christian nationalism.
0: Yeah, yeah, almost Um, two years ago. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it's like, you know, Hey, we're, we're glad that you're pursuing this sort of theological conviction. However, why are you in, why are you still engaging this? Why are you, why are you worshiping the state and making it your savior?
0: And for people who pride themselves on doctrinal purity and for holding to the test and having these standards of saying this Mm will be right. Then it's easy to have a blind eye on what you've compromised on because you're so busy making sure everybody else is in accordance with our doctrinal with our doctrinal statement like yeah you've gone too far with this one and then you've compromised on that one over there and it's really dangerous yeah yeah
1: uh verse four says but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first this is another one of those things where it's not telling us what that love is so how how far do we push and speculate on what that
0: is well it's hard and it's, it's interesting that there's a, a, a wide consensus in the scholarly world on what this means, not because we know explicitly what you've left your first love means, but because he goes on to say, which we'll talk about in a minute, that they're, they're going to lose their lampstand. I'm going to take your lampstand away from you. So we suspect In the lampstand,
1: that's going back to the beginning of or the middle, end of chapter one, where the lampstand is the church. Yeah, 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 very good. The so it's losing stands, its witness in a sense. The churches
0: are the lampstands, and their role as lampstands is to make the light shine, and and it's their role as witness. So it seems like, okay, you guys have been so concerned about doctrinal purity that you've lost love. You forgot to love. Uh, so um, uh, G.B. Carey, one of the great older scholars uh, from the 1970s and 80s, whatever, says... The one charge against the Ephesians is that their intolerance of imposture, their unflagging loyalty, and their hatred of heresy has bred an inquisitorial spirit which left no room for love. Personally, I think we, we've seen this in so much of evangelical Christianity. You go on Facebook and social media over the last number of years, and they're so concerned that we hold to this th- uh, teaching or that, we, uh, that America does this or that we, we vote for this or we support mm-hmm. this that they forgot to love the people on the other end. And I think we saw this, of course, with uh, the homosexual community in the 1970s and 80s, that AIDS was a curse on you guys because of, yeah. of your sins. And it's like, you know what? We forgot to love them. We should have been in their bedsides, loving them and supporting them and encouraging them and showing them what love looked like. But instead we were condemning them. Threat may, uh, to remove their their lampstand may suggest that their standing as a Christian community is gonna, is gonna vanish. And I think that's one of, the, one of the problems.
1: It's interesting that you bring up the Christian response to the AIDS epidemic. Yesterday, Mm -hmm. I was having uh, lunch with a coworker who I worked very closely with. And at our church, we're just having a lot of starting to have a lot of really good conversations regarding LGBTQ issues, uh, specifically. And like, we we have our position on sexual ethics themselves, Mm -hmm. but then, okay, you can have your doctrine on sexual ethics, but then how does that actually play out? And what does that mean to first you know love people who are lgbtq what does that look like but then also in our context we're going to be seeing more of family members who are affected by this and so we're wrestling with the type of questions like what does it mean you know should you attend a gay wedding what do you do with mm-hmm. pronouns we're just wrestling with all the things like mm-hmm. is there a christian position and it's very easy to say yes or no but I, I think it's much more nuanced than that where there's yeah, a great yeah. dialogue one of my feedbacks to my friend who's kind of leading the charge and overseeing this is saying whatever our Response is, regardless where you're at in the spectrum, if if it's not leading from a place of love, right? Like it really doesn't matter where you come down on.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I I would agree. I think love needs you need you can you need to have both Mm -hmm. doctrinal purity and but and love, but one without the other is no is useless.
1: And we fall into this trap of saying, "I'm going to speak truth and." Love. Yeah. And, and what that means is, I'm going to give you the truth and I'm giving it to you because I love you. And I can be right. a total jerk about it, but I'm saving yeah. your soul from hell. If We justify it. And it's like, no, you're just being a jerk. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's I, no love. I, absolutely. There. absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, so we, we kind of hinted this a second ago, but if you want yeah. to flush it out, what does it mean? You know, the threat of losing your lampstand, the, the lampstand is obviously, uh, symbolic of being the church, the people of God. Uh, so mm-hmm. how could you lose this? I mean, what are they going to lose their 501 C three? Uh, you know, like, you know, their tax status, what, what are they going to lose?
0: Yeah. I think they're going to lose their identity as a gathering, a local gathering of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? So they could they, still be they- gathering they could still be gathering and they could still like, self-identify as a church, as a community. And of course, the word church is an anachronism at this point. Uh, and Jesus is like, I'm taking your lampstand away because it, it's like, you guys are not helping the cause here at all. So it's a, it's a severe threat. And it reminds again that doctrinal purity is great, but if you lost your first love, it's worthless. In um, In a
1: way, can we replace the phrase i'm just trying to contextualize this sure Re- replace the phrase lose your lamp stand and maybe call it something like you will not be relevant or or something like you know i'm, I'm just thinking of churches mm-hmm. in our modern context too they're still churches and whatnot but they've lost all their relevance especially now in a in a post covid post trump era where there's been this a huge divide everything's been polarized and you know maybe we're 30 years ago a billy graham goes on larry king or something like that and even if you're not a christian you're going to listen to him there's a respect for the the pastor mm-hmm. now it's like there's just certain religious figures who they're jokes they're not right you know, like no one it's not that i'm not going to listen to i'm actually going to be against you is it that sort of thing
0: well i, I think that's actually a part of the problem and that is i think much of the world still looks at that individual as okay. emblematic of christianity mm-hmm. And that's the problem. So in Jesus's eyes, this the church in Ephesus has lost its lampstone. Let's just suppose hypothetically that that took place. However, the people around them still see them gathering together, claiming to be Christians and claiming to be a church. And I have this conversation all the time with people. They're like, oh, so-and-so, you know, what they're doing here is making a mockery of the church, making a mockery of Christianity. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that they, they, they are, but we have to keep in mind that people that are doing that, for example, are not Christians. Isn't mm-hmm. I wouldn't even focus it on that conversation as much as I'd say what we need to do is focus the conversation and zoom the lens on those who are in humility acting in love towards their neighbors. The problem is, we always say, you know, in the media, sex sells, right? Mm-hmm. War sells, conflict sells. The people like Mother Teresa's of the world they are doing those kind of things in there, the, the, the individuals in our congregations and our communities. That are praying regularly, that are fasting, that are serving, that are giving to the poor, that are doing all these volunteer things. They don't. They don't make the news, and that doesn't make the popular media. Yep. Yeah. The people that are doing all these things that are out in the, in the popular world that are getting attention are are representing Christianity to the world, and we need to somehow focus the eyes of the world on others who are doing the who are living out the gospel in humility and love. And that's. And I guess that starts with us, right? It starts with our own lives, and say, all right, look. You know, if, let's say you're having a conversation with someone hypothetically, and we'll move on here after this, but you're having a conversation with someone hypothetically, and they start bringing the charge against Christians, dah, 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 then I turn around and say, I hope you don't feel that way about me. Mm. And if we can say that, and honestly, and they go, well, no, I don't, then it begins to get them to go, okay, they're not all that way. And I think that's an important way to have the conversation. So that's good. So in a sense,
1: uh, the concept of lampstand, it's, it's an effect of being the witness of Christ.
0: Yeah, right, right. Uh, but of course, by witness, and whenever you say the word witness, people immediately think standing on a street corner, yeah. p- telling people about Jesus, or being in your workplace, telling people about Jesus, Then, they're like, I'm afraid to do that. I know so many Christians are afraid to do that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think we need to overcome that fear, uh, nonetheless. But the role as Christians of witness is to live like Jesus, mm-hmm. right? He says, take up your cross and follow me and he doesn't add oh and by the way and make sure you blast everybody who's not doing it and make sure you let everybody know who, when they're pagans that they're acting like it doesn't say that he he loves them he and he and he he does tell them hey you know go and sin no more mm. right but for the most part he's just living it out in this quiet loving way and then his words are also characteristic of uh, emblematic of the, the lifestyle that he's living and the way i would always say it is this that if we fail to live like Jesus, then our words are actually meaningless anyways. Mm -hmm. And in fact, our words can actually do more harm because then our words go in that category of, oh yeah, that's what Christians are like. So-and-so says they're a Christian, but they do all these things. So we need to have our live characteristic of following Jesus as much as possible, which includes humility of acknowledging that I've made mistakes and acknowledging my sins and acknowledging my weaknesses. And then people will come to us for our words because they respect them. Mm -hmm.
1: Hey everyone, we wanna thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we wanna remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. We move to the next letter. So this is uh, the message to Smyrna, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 8, but I'll read 9 and 10. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Hmm. So although they are in poverty, they're actually it, it, in my translation that puts it in parentheses, you're, you're oh, really? in poverty. Yeah, yeah. So it says, uh, you know, I know you are I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Okay. Uh, it's interesting. It's they make it like parenthetical. Um, but it's he's probably trying to make more of a contrast yeah. there. New
0: American Standard does that also. So okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. And then it, you're already suffering tribulation, mm. uh, and are told that they are about to face ten days of imprisonment and suffering. So we know that tribulation is going to be somewhat of a theme. Overcoming is going to be mm-hmm. y- you overcome tribulation. That, that's a theme yeah. in Revelation. But then also we have a number here, 10 days. Yeah. Uh, and so as we've already talked about, that's probably going to be symbolic, right? It's a I don't know, poverty rich, tribulation, suffering, 10 days. What do we what do we do with these?
0: Yeah. So I think this letter is really important for us to understand the whole the, the entirety of the message of the book of Revelation as a whole, especially when we contrast the church in Smyrna with the church in La- Laodicea, uh, who was rich and wealthy and in need of nothing. But Jesus says, You're m- miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So what happens, what's going on here, I think, first off, is that there's a general issue of tribulation, and tribulation is used in the book of Revelation to refer to that suffering that's going to come upon maybe even the whole world in chapter three, it seems to imply that, but especially upon God's people for faithfully persevering to the end uh, and overcoming the Roman and imperial practices, etc. As a result of that, then, it's their poverty. Remember, we said that if you don't Uh, go along with the trade guilds or you don't go along with the worshiping of the idols and if you don't go along with the imperial cult then one of the things that might happen to you is the fact that you're going to be ostracized from society you're going to be put put aside and as a result of that it was poverty the poverty here is a result of their faithfulness Hmm. so it's not it's not simply a a glorifying of poverty because they're poor it's it's poverty especially because of of your faithfulness that doesn't mean that that people who are poor and that we should we should castigate them. That's not what I'm talking about at all. It's simply saying that the, the poverty here is a poverty because of their faithfulness to Christ. And then the response is, but, but you're rich. Mm. Now, the second problem is, oh, and I know the slander or the, or the blasphemy, the, the Greek word actually is pretty much, it's pretty strong here. Uh, of those who say they are Jews, and we discussed this before, um, but in, in reality, they're a synagogue of Satan. And uh, he seems to be denouncing um, or putting down at least the Jews that were denouncing the Christians. And the rea- reality is that they are in themselves a synagogue of Satan, and the devil. His answer then is that the devil is going to put some of you in prison for ten days, and the ten days is interesting because it doesn't have any explicit um, symbolic meaning. Most likely, the ten days has to do with the Book of Daniel. It's really interesting, and I think there's an interesting parallel here. And Daniel one, Daniel and his buddies, um, mm. they were deported to Babylon. Uh, by the Babylonian king and uh, after the conquering of, J- of Jerusalem and Judea and all that good stuff, they're deported to Babylon. And what the Babylonians did is they took the, the, the strong, the, the ones of good minds and, you know, and they enslaved some. And then they took the ones that were most educated and everything else. And they said, okay, we're going to make you guys work for us. And they tried to assimilate them into their Chaldean way or the Babylonian way. You're going to eat the king's food. You're going to drink the king's drinks. You're going to learn the king's ways. And they were trained on what we might call um, what's what I want right now. Like Anthony? astrology. Yeah, yeah, on, on astrology. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How to how to read the signs and interpret dreams and all these things. And they're going to be taught all these different ways. And here's the way it's going to work: Your guys are going to eat the king's food for ten for this period of time and become like the king's people. And so it says in uh, Daniel chapter one verse eight: It says Daniel made up his mind; he wouldn't defile himself. This is Daniel chapter one verse eight. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or the wine which he drank. Now think about it, by the way. He's reading the king's curriculum. He's reading their books on astrology and how to read the signs and if the omens and all these things. But what he objects to is the food. And so he sought permission from the commander of the officials to, that he might not defile himself. Now the commander of the officials, by the way, if if this guy doesn't eat the king's food and therefore is like not up to snuff at the end of the day, so when, you know, when testing time comes, Daniel's not up to snuff because he didn't eat the right foods. The commander of the officials is his head's on the line. Mm-hmm. And so, but God granted him favor and compassion. Verse nine, it says, "In the side of the commander of the officials and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of, of my Lord, the king, which uh, legitimately afraid because he's appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Uh, then you would make me forfeit my head. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the command of the officials had appointed Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, Daniel and his three friends, he said, Please test your servants for 10 days and let us give and be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink, which is more of a kosher kind of diet, right? Remember, Jews could eat meat, but the meat had to have the blood properly drained. So we're going to eat more of a kosher meal. So test us. We're going to be faithful to the law. Even though we're, we're um, being educated in the king's ways, we're educated in the astrology. We're being educated in omens and how to read dreams and all these things. What we're objecting to is the diet. So it says he listened to him for 10 days. Verse 15 says, at the end of the 10 days, their appearance was better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. As a result, they, they were given favor. And so that's the only possible allusion here to the 10 days is that it was a 10. And note, by the way, in, in Revelation chapter 2, it says, You'll be tested for 10 days. Be faithful, even the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And so the idea is that maybe the believers in Smyrna were being encouraged that their testing was like Daniel and his his buddies for a a short period of time, and that God's going to protect you during during this time.
1: Hmm. So there's this period of 10 days, and they're going to be suffering. Um, How are they going to be suffering? Is this something where someone's going to be turning them in or uh, revealing that? there's something going on with them? Uh, you know, how, how, how do we know this?
0: All we know in the message of the church in Smyrna was that they were going to face tribulation or suffering for 10 days. And again, 10 days is a symbolic timeframe. It's not a, it, it's probably, it might've been longer than 10 days. It might've been shorter. We don't know. It's just not forever. It, it, exactly. Yeah. It, it's brief uh, in the, in the larger scope of things. It seems that, that the ones who were turning them over were mem- members of the synagogue. So it might've been Jews who were turning them in. And there's an interesting parallel. So, there's a famed letter that take, that's actually written about maybe 20 to 30 years after the book of Revelation, depending on when you date the book of Revelation, early part of the second century, from a governor named Pliny to the emperor Trajan. And there was some problems similar to what was happening, perhaps in Smyrna, although it was the Jewish synagogues uh, that were turning them in. So uh, Vinny, do, do you want to read the letter here? We have a copy of this letter that, that survived in history, and then we have Trajan's response. And it just gives us an idea of what was happening in locales when some people said, you know what? We don't like these Christian guys. Let's turn them in.
1: So Pliny says, meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogate these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I inter- interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered execute uh, ordered executed. Soon, accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons, those who denied that they were or had been Christians. When they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with statutes of the gods, and moreover, cursed Christ. None of which those who are really Christians, it is said can be forced to do these. I thought should be discharged. Others named by the informer declared that they were, they were Christians, but then denied it asserting that they had been, but had ceased to be some three years before others, many years, some as much as 25 years. They all worshiped your image and the statutes of the gods and cursed Christ.
0: So you can see what happens when Christians were being turned in by locals, right? We don't Mm -hmm. know who the locals were here. And what Pliny's doing in this letter is he's like, hey, by the way, I want to let you know, because you're the emperor, this is what I'm doing. And I want to see, make sure that's okay. Because guess what, I am punishing people that are citizens of your empire. And I want, wanted you to know. So, so then Trajan, we actually have a copy of Trajan's response as well, if you want to read that.
1: Yes, yeah, says, you observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They, the Christians, are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age.
0: Yeah. So again, we see here 30 years or so after the book of Revelation was written, maybe 20 years later, Christians are being charged with the crime of being a Christian and they're being brought before the authorities, denounce Jesus, curse Christ, which I hear Christians can't do, burn incense before an image of the emperor, worship our gods. If so, then you guys can go free. If they Mm. don't, then they're punished. Mm-hmm. And it might be something of that nature, although it appears in Smyrna that it was uh, maybe members of the local synagogue. And we discussed the context behind that before. Hey, they're not true Jews. They don't get to, to, to kind of fall under the banner of Jews and be exempt from that. Interesting. Uh, when we just look at the message to
1: Smyrna as a whole, this is going to be one of the few messages that has no negatives. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's, that's right. It goes straight to do not fear and, and talks about their imprisonment and death. And again, I think it's, a, it's really interesting. The churches that are poor, and suffering are the ones that have no negatives. The mm-hmm. ones that are wealthy uh, or doctrinally sound are the ones that have more than an ample amount of negatives. But that's not to
1: make, we should not then conclude yeah. that it's better to be poor in a sense of, uh, I shouldn't say better be poor, uh, but it's <laughs> that's the virtue one's going after. Someone could right, be right. rich and still yeah. be as virtuous and, and live in a Jesus ethic.
0: That That's right. There's a danger and I wrote wrote some blogs about this a while ago on power and oftentimes wealth and power go hand in hand. And when that happens, power can be very corrupting and that becomes problematic. But remember the gospel of Luke was written to a man named Theophilus who was very wealthy and funded the gospel and funded the writing of the gospel. And there have always been uh, Christians and some of the wealthier Christians in the church that are very giving, that actually support and keep the local church supported. So, amen, go go for it. It's just a danger when the church as a whole becomes wealthy and powerful.
1: Yeah. We hope you're enjoying the podcast and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. So moving on to the next message, uh, starting in verse 12 of chapter two, we have the message to Pergamum. So I'll, I'll read 13 through 16. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. In 13 specifically, mm-hmm. uh, verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Here we have, you're holding to my name. You have not denied my faith. They were faithful. This seems to be a, a virtue, right, That a positive.
0: Yeah. In fact, it's the one explicit indication of a church that was undergoing persecution. Okay. But the persecution was in the past, even in the days of Antipas. So it Ah. wasn't a present persecution. So remember we discussed, some argue that the book of Revelation was, the most common interpretation, in fact, has been that the book of Revelation was written during a time of persecution or suffering. And it appears now that there's a threat of persecution and suffering. And this is the only indication that they were actually suffering. And this suffering actually was, was in the past. Uh, and notice that Antipas is referred to as my faithful witness, which is actually almost identical to the first description of Jesus in the book of mm-hmm. revelation, chapter one, uh, where in chapter one, verse five, where Jesus is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the rulers of the Kings of the earth. And this is what I think is a common theme in the book of revelation that the people of God, I don't like using the word church here. Cause it's just, it's confusing Christians, us, the people of God, are described in ways that imitate Jesus. So we discussed already that the 144,000 and the great multitude, their voices sound just like the voices of Jesus, like the sound of many waters. So now Antipas was just like Jesus. He was my faithful witness. And there's a a tradition, there's no way of knowing this, that Antipas might have been one of the sons of Herod. Uh, Of course, Herod Antipas is one of the guys in the book of Acts that's you know, questioning Paul and doing all these things, but we don't know if that's actually the case there or not. And there's a wonderful book called The Lost Letters of Pergamum uh, that kind of builds on that thesis there, uh, ultimately. There's a tradition, and I have it here, and you may want to like, I either may want to not read this, or you may want to fast forward 30 seconds and not listen to this. How Antipas was was killed, Uh, there's a tradition that goes to the Byzantines, which is obviously late now on how he was killed. And I'll just simply say this, I'm not going to read the whole description, but it was nasty, violent. It was un, unspeakable in terms of what they did to him and and burned alive basically would be the simple way of putting it, but worse than that, worse than being burned alive. So uh, mm. horrible. Verses 14 and
1: 15, uh, Pergamum is warned yeah. because they welcomed false teachers in their midst.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the false teachers are those who are teaching in accordance with Balaam, who who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. It says in verse 14, to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And then as we mentioned before, verse 15 says, and thus you also are are in the same way, you have some who hold to the teaching of of the Nicolaitans. This has allowed many to think that the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the teaching of Balaam, whatever that might refer to, are the same. And it could very well be, going back to the message in, in Ephesus. But Pergamum, appears to be kind of the central problem for this particular teaching. Now, remember, Pergamum was like the capital city of the seven churches of Asia, especially when it came to the imperial cult. So it appears that not only were some uh, Christ followers in Pergamum were compromising their faith by eating food sacrificed to idols, they were also committing acts of immorality. Uh, And it's it's uncertain exactly what's going on here, but the context is this. In the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25, We meet this man named Balaam, and he was basically a hired hand. Balak was the king of Moab, and Moab was modern-day part of modern-day Jordan, so just across the Jordan River uh, to to the east. And Balak, the king of Moab, promises to play Balaam, who was uh, basically a a diviner, a a pagan hired hand, and said, hey, listen, I want to hire you so that you can curse the Israelites. And they were at war. Uh, Moab and the Israelites were at war. So Balak offers Balaam money to hire for hire so he can curse the Israelites. However, you get a talking donkey and all these other things that go along like, Balaam, you probably ought not to curse the Israelites. And so he decides to not curse the Israelites. And that's, it's kind of odd when you read the story, you're like, well, I think Balaam's kind of a good guy here because he doesn't curse the Israelites. But if you keep reading in chapter, Numbers chapter 25, when they keep reading uh, Numbers chapter 25, uh, verses one and two, it says, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So note verses one and two of, tw- of Numbers 25 refers to them playing the harlot with the daughters of Moab, which seems to suggest sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. And they were sacrificing to the gods and eating and bowing down to the gods. This appears to correspond perfectly with the context of The seven messages and the threat of the imperial cult in in the Roman world. And the tradition is that it was Balaam, even though Balaam doesn't curse the Israelites, it was Balaam who was actually advising and encouraging the Israelites to do this. So even though he doesn't curse the Israelites like Balak hired him to do, he is instrumental in getting the Israelites to follow after other gods and bow down to them and also to commit acts of immorality.
1: You have these two complaints in the matches to pergamum here then that correspond to this old testament reference yeah. uh or this old testament image which is eating food sacrificed to idols and committing uh acts of sexual immorality in verse 14.
0: yeah and and again so sexual so eating food sacrificed to idols of course the problem was at the temples and honor the temples mm-hmm. and honor the deities and they're bowing down before the gods that's clearly the context in the book of numbers which is different as we've discussed perhaps with what paul's talking about in first corinthians 8 uh, and eating meat that was, you know, purchased at the market and in the marketplace in your own homes. Yeah. But sexual immorality, then that's the other question, what does it mean? It can refer to either sexual acts themselves, which seems to be the case in the book of numbers, because they're playing the heart at, with the women, it says explicitly there. But it can also just simply refer to idolatry.
1: I mean, the whole uh, book of Hosea, going back to the yeah, Old Testament, it's yeah, about exactly, sexual immorality, right? right? Yeah.
0: And, and oftentimes, sexual immorality, even the, and the New Testament is referring to mm-hmm. um, idolatry. So the idea being that you Israel, or you the Church, or you the people of God, are wed to God, Yahweh. We've made a covenant with Him, and it's a marriage covenant. And when we follow after other gods, we commit a, adultery. We, by following other gods, committing idolatry, mm-hmm. is therefore an act of uh, adultery.
1: So in light of all this, Pergamum is warned and exhorted to repent in verse 16. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, repent. If not, I'm going to come to you and it, man, it's
0: not going to be good. Yeah. And in fact, the Greek is really emphatic. It's repent, therefore. Mm. Right? And the word repent is fronted. And the word therefore follow, follows that. It. It's very emphatic. Repent, therefore. Um, and this is not, you know, again, we have to be careful with we have to be careful with a number of things. Number one, we have to be careful reading the letters as though we're on John's side, and this is not speaking to us, it's speaking to them, unless it's something good to say. Right? Mm-hmm. And then we also have to be careful about you know, making repentance something like, oh, I feel bad for my sins. No, th- those in Pergamum need to repent by rejecting these false teachers. And that's what repentance looks like. All right, Rob. So
1: as we wrap up today's show, yeah. we're obviously not going to finish all of the seven messages, okay. which is fine. But uh, I don't. Know, what are some? What are some takeaways? Obviously, we've already established that. John is writing to specific congregations. There's things happening there, but I'm, this is just dripping with application, yeah. even to us, even in, even in an era where we're not physically giving worship in the public square to deities, mm-hmm. to physical deities, and that sort of thing. Uh, there's still a lot of application here, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, there are right, and there's things that we gonna have to continue to process as, as we perceive. Well, I'll give one, and then I'll want to hear from you, and then maybe I have some more in response also, but. I'm thinking, and, and this, is, this is not my only example, so please listen carefully. I'm thinking, for example, of older established congregations, not necessarily mm-hmm. old congregations of older people, but congregations that are, that are established that have this tenacity for doctrinal um, soundness and orthodoxy, which is not necessarily bad. In fact, the church in, in uh, Ephesus was commended for it. But as a result of that, they lost their love. And I think there's an important balance between those two. And the problem becomes when we get so ingrained on being concerned about doctrinal purity that we are unwilling to change with the signs of the times. And we, we defend our doctrinal purity, whatever our doctrinal issue might, might be, with our dogma so that when someone else comes along and threatens that, we immediately resist. I think you need to be careful with that. There's so many social issues I think, that are going on today I think the church needs to step back and go, how do we act in love in the midst of this? And I think that's an important thing to consider and I'm being vague, but, uh, but obviously intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, for me, it's looking at Smyrna and this congregation who um, mm-hmm. you're poor and not just poor poverty. <laughs> like it, it, you, you are in the down of the dumps, even though you're at, you live on the top of the Hill. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining all the mountain or in uh, you know, we're, we're both, I'm still in California. You, born and raised in california you, you look at like hollywood and yeah. uh you know you, everyone knows the famous hollywood sign mm-hmm. uh but the, the that hill those hills mm-hmm. are filled with those are where the mansions at those are all the movie stars and the people who have multi-million dollar homes a million dollar home in california is garbage now so you have, you have these like 30 40 50 60 million dollar homes that are ridiculous yeah. and, and i'm thinking like those people who are up there it's like yeah you're living at the top of the hollywood hill but you're actually poor and and Mm -hmm. if if you know about southern california homelessness is a huge issue right and it's like Mm -hmm. i'm just imagining this flip where it's like you're actually just like those people living on skid row Mm -hmm. and uh i don't know just wrestling with the idea of what does it mean to to search after financial security uh, right now not putting a, a value on where you live or zip codes or anything but just uh what do we, what are we willing to, what do we risk on a daily basis? What are we willing to compromise on to maintain that sort of security? And when is mm-hmm. it okay to say, nope, I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be 10 days uh, yep. and I might have to, I might have to, you know, live down here for 10 days. I might not have my house on the Hill, but you know what, uh, that's just what needs to happen in order mm-hmm. to uh, just be able to look Jesus in the face and say, yep, I, I'm, I'm following you. I'm yep. willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I think uh, there's a lot I want to say on that too, but uh, but we'll discuss it in in a future time. I think the other thing I guess I would add also would be just what does compromise with pagan idolatry look like today? Mm -hmm. And notice that compromising with, and it's not just pagan idolatry, it's with the empire, it's with the system, the economic, socioeconomic, political, religious system. It's rampant today. And it's affected the church radically today. And we don't see it because it doesn't have all the earmarks of bowing down before and burning incense before an image of the emperor. Um, And I think it's it's alive and well today. And I think we need to to reckon with what does that look like and what does that mean? And it goes back, and I'll say it again, to the parable of the sower, that we compromise our faith because of thorns or stones. And thorns are comforts, securities, power, pleasure, those things. And stones are suffering. So we compromise our faith so that we can avoid those things. And, uh, I think we've done too good a job of that in the church today. And I think we need to be careful. So,
1: yeah. and uh, even, even there, what is compromise and what mm-hmm. are the things we just need to endure in life? Mm-hmm. And, 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 mm-hmm. I, and, and I'm asking that, like, I, that's not a little right. question. Like, I don't know. Right. Um, right yeah. And, and, and the answer is you know,
0: different for you and it's different for me and, and it's different for, we're not saying that you can't be wealthy. We're saying, wait a minute. Are you relying upon that wealth? Why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothing? That's that. that it's the Matthew 6 uh, question mm-hmm. there. So sorry to cut you off there.
1: Well, no, and, and I, oftentimes I don't think we do know these things until no. it's armchair quarterbacking. It's hindsight uh, and you can look back and you say, oh, that's the moment. Or that's when I realized there was a compromise uh, mm-hmm. and we learned it's wisdom. You gain wisdom from that. But even thinking in a professional environment, uh, you know, what do you do when you're in, involved in a professional environment where, there's unfair practices or something's right. going on. And and there's that sense of, okay, I'm gonna stick through it because I'm gonna be an agent of change. And we need to have, you know, you need to have people lining the offices sure. uh, of your corporate job or whatever, who have integrity and that sort of thing. But when's the time where you're just saying, I'm just staying here because it's convenient and I don't trust. Yeah, um, yeah. and I'm benefiting
0: job. from from whatever the injustice is exactly. at yeah. the expense of somebody else. I think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but
1: absolutely. these are difficult. I, they're, they're, yeah. It's easy to look back on it saying, I should have done this then. And this is where we need to give ourselves grace yeah. And to not live in this idealism of, of there should have been a right and wrong and you learn from it, but you're always watching, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think at the, on the flip side too, right? Absolutely. Totally. From what you, what you just said there on the flip side though, we, we need to wrestle with this. Yeah. Sometimes we just, we don't wrestle. We know the question there. I'm afraid to wrestle with it. I don't know how to wrestle with it. And so I just let it be there. Maybe a pastor or a teacher reminds me in a couple of years from now, and I think about it again there, but I just wrestle with, okay, I'll, I'll get along because I need to give grace. Like, I think we need to wrestle with these a whole lot more than we're wrestling with them. Yeah. You know, and especially go back to first Corinthians 11, the church is one body mm. and our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are struggling and suffering and we are in power and wealthy. And what are we doing about it? Yeah. God didn't do it, give it to us just for our sakes, but for the well-being of the body. And when the whole body is well, then the gospel flourishes. So yeah, much more to be said. All right. Very good. Thanks mm-hmm. Vinny.
1: All right, good. So uh, next week we'll come back and we'll just continue on taking the past, looking at the same yeah. kind of thing, the positives and the negatives of each church.
0: Yeah. We'll go to Thyatira and Sardis and maybe Philadelphia and, and Laodicea.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Thank See you, everyone yeah. next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people